This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of California State University, Sacramento. Today, my guest is Jeffrey White, and we're going to talk about the birth of psychological war, propaganda, espionage, and military violence from World War II to the Vietnam War, out with Oxford University Press in 2023 and available through open access. Dr. White earned his PhD with the Department of Geography at the University of British Columbia, and before that, earned his MA with the School of Communications at Simon Fraser University, also in beautiful British Columbia. He is currently a lecturer in international relations at the Department of Politics, Philosophy, and Religion at Lancaster University in the UK. Dr. Jeffrey White, uh, Jeff, if I may, welcome to New Books in History. Thanks, mate. Uh, really appreciate it. So um, before we get into the book, uh, The Birth of Psychological War, Propaganda, Espionage, and Military Violence from World War II to the mm-hmm. Vietnam War, would you please tell us a little bit about yourself uh, and how you came to be the scholar that you are and what drew you to the the topic of psychological warfare? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I've had a bit of a, a circuitous route to where I am now. Um, I started um, in, in my undergrad studying uh, philosophy, um, mostly continental philosophy at a sort of s- small liberal arts school um, in Halifax, Nova Scotia, sort of um, near to where I grew up. Um, it was a program really kind of designed around um, history of ideas um, and sort of contemporary um, continental philosophy. And from there, I moved to the the other coast of Canada, to Vancouver, and I did a master's degree in communication studies. Uh, which in Canada is a sort of interesting tradition. There's this um, critical school of communication studies in Canada that combines cultural studies and political economy. Um, and that was a really, really great place to to study and shaped a lot of my, my thinking about um, l- looking at um, the politics of communication. And then I moved for my PhD to the other side of the city. Um, I started a PhD program in the geography department uh, at the University of British Columbia. Uh, I studied with Derek Gregory there, who is doing a lot of writing on the global war on terror, uh, on the history of aerial bombardment. Um, and that's where I sort of learned to take a more geographical approach. Um, and it was a really great environment. There was a lot of students and faculty there working um, in critical military studies. So it was just a, a, a really terrific environment. And on the question of, of psychological war, I mean, so for me as a young person, um, you know, the sort of defining political event of that time of my life was the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan and this sort of procession of, um, I mean, tragedies and and, and farces, I guess, um, really made me uh, 
want to engage more in the politics of uh, of war and, and, and those wars. Um, and I think it's easy to forget now because a lot of this sort of discourse has fallen away, but there was so much enthusiasm at the time for this cultural turn um, in war towards counterinsurgency, this idea of um, winning hearts and minds uh, abroad. And that really captured my imagination, I think, this idea that there was a um, a type of knowledge or technique that could be used to um, m manipulate people abroad and, and sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, make friends and influence people right and 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 it's and the, the idea is psychological war it's such a alluring kind of idea right it sounds kind of sinister but a bit um you know but a bit intriguing as well so i set out um in my studies i think perhaps naively in, in fact i'm sure naively um uh, to begin with trying to think about um, well how can i uncover or expose what you know what what we are doing to, as I say, try to control public opinion, to manipulate people. Um, and of course, you didn't have to scratch the surface very far to realize that, well, we weren't winning a whole lot of hearts and minds. So my interest quickly changed from this question of, well, how are we controlling people's minds in, in foreign countries um, to, well, how did we ever come to believe that this is something that we could do in the first place? So the project took sort of an historical turn there and I became interested in, or, I mean, I guess I sort of end up, ended up trying to write this political history of the idea of psychological war um, and, and the idea of it as a, as a concept in international politics. So it became sort of a, a, a genealogy, I guess, of psychological war in that, in that sort of Foucauldian sense. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. That I think that genealogy uh, metaphor works uh, works well for it. And you, um, so you you start the book with uh, the great news, uh, somewhat uh, tongue in cheek, <laughs> that uh, yeah. psychological warfare is back, kids. Um, <laughs> you know, what, what, so what what is the conventional or official definition of psychological warfare or psyops, and and when was the first the term first coined, and by whom? And you note that there is some debate within the the field on you know. Is this an ancient uh, hmm. uh, technique, or is this something that's newer? You argue that there's there's a much newer birth point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think this is this is really what um, a lot of the book ends up um, trying to answer. Right? Is where does this concept of psychological warfare um, come from? Um, and there's no real one agreed upon definition, but I can maybe give you sort of a, a composite definition. Um, the sort of conventional um, uh, composite definition, which would be um, any sort of attempt to achieve political goals by influencing the thoughts, beliefs, or feelings of various target audiences or groups. Now, that's an incredibly abstract um, definition. Um, I can refine that down a little bit because I think there's often confusion about exactly what we're talking about. So one of the things that we think about when we think about psychological war is tactical psi war or battlefield psychological war. These are the things like dropping leaflets on enemy soldiers or directing loudspeakers towards them, radio broadcasts. These are things like trying to reach, reach enemy soldiers with uh, defection appeals or um, things like safe conduct passes, right? Like that look like a passport that say, if you carry this to the to the other side, you have you'll have safe safe conduct to, to surrender. Um, 
And those are often directed towards, again, enemy, enemy soldiers. And then there's the, the idea of strategic psi war, which is um, the audiences then get a bit more um, diverse. So these can be civilians in enemy countries, civilians in neutral countries, um, political leaders. Um, so, so this is where it, it becomes a bit more uh, amorphous and, and things like, um, you know, entertainment films, newspapers, books, these can all be considered under the rubric of strategic psychological war. But so, I mean, but more often than not, the, the, the definition of psychological warfare is often very, again, as I say, abstract and very flexible. One of the first um, writers on psychological war, one of the first sort of post-war collections that attempted to codify um, a theory or a definition of psychological war actually came out of Johns Hopkins University, um, they had what was called the Operations Research Office, which had been contracted with the U.S. Army um, in throughout the 1950s. And they put out a sort of trilogy of books that were trying to define psychological war. And, and the first one, I believe, was written by uh, Wilbur Schramm, who is a, one of these foundational um, scholars in early communication studies, so like orthodox communication studies, things like public opinion polling and trying to work out the science of, of public opinion. And he gives this very, by his own admission, circular definition of psychological war, saying, well, psychological war is what psychological warriors do. Um, and, and he sort of admits that that's not going to satisfy a lot of people. Um, but there's, there's something ab about that. Um, there's flexibility in that circularity. And there's something about, I think, people who practice psychological war not wanting to be, be pinned down with too specific uh, a, a definition. And the favorite one line that I came up, which which was a, from a subsequent volume in that series, um, is the editor notes that, and uh, this is a direct quote, that when most people who write or talk about psychological war, they use the term, like Humpty Dumpty did in his discussion with Alice, Alice in Wonderland, concerning glory. He told her, when I use a word, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. And so I think that's there's a lot of that um, Again, purposeful flexibility um, in 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 keeping the idea of psychological war really vague. Um, but but I'll say a bit. I think more than trying to nail down a specific definition of psy war, I think um, something that's really important is understanding the context in which to emerge. Uh, and that was in the interwar years when the idea of propaganda propaganda was a bad word, right? Um, so many people felt um, so deeply deceived by the sort of large-scale propaganda campaigns that uh, occurred in essentially all of the belligerent countries. And there had been this wave in, of- In the, in the, in the uh, World War One, the Great in, War. In for, that's yeah. right, yes. Yeah. Um, and, and there was a huge wave of publishing um, in the interwar years that were sort of debunking all of the excesses of the propaganda. So propaganda became a, a, a really bad word. So I think one of the reasons that we see psychological war, it's, it's a claim that um, we're not just doing- propaganda, or this is something more than propaganda as vulgar deception. There's something productive, there's something scientifically calibrated about this. Um, and so so, so I, I think partially there was an attempt to distance the sort of then contemporary practice of, of, of you know, what's now psychological war from the, the sort of by then very pejorative um, term uh, propaganda. And so- right. So, so that's the context. And then the other, um, so when we start to think about the origins, it's often 
traced back to the immediate post-war era. I already mentioned the series of publications by um, the Johns Hopkins um, Operations Research Office. There's also um, like a raft of publications. Uh, people like Paul Leinbarger write a book about their experience in the Second World War um, called Psychological War. Daniel Lerner, who eventually becomes one of these MIT modernization theorists, writes a book about um, Allied war against Germany. And one of the things, and this is what you referenced in, in the question, they all of these authors sort of try to project psychological warfare back into history as if it has this sort of elemental history um, or this elemental, it's it's part of the, the the natural history of war. They'll say things like, well, psychological war is as old as nations. Um, or even okay, older, right? You, 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 you yeah. cite authors who say it goes back to the Bible, right? Yeah, Gideon's ruse in the Old Testament is the first is the first uh, um, instance of, of psychological war. And so, what what I think this idea of trying to date it back obscures is the very particular circumstances under which the idea of psychological war enters the American political lexicon. Um, basically, essentially, in 1940, and 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 no earlier, sort of comes comes out of nowhere, more or less. So, I, I spend a lot of time in the book and in that first chapter, especially thinking about those specific circumstances. Yeah. So is, is that your your revision to this conventional definition that it that it has this this birth moment in, in 1940 and comes out of these unique circumstances? And yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so this is the I I, I think for me this is the thing maybe that I'm most most proud of in the book, and it's the thing I didn't really expect to find when I started um, doing the research for it, which is that um, there's this whole sort of drama um, to psychological warfare and to, to its origins. It's this um, real kind of uh, spy thriller in a way, right? It's um, it's this sort of I, I, it's it's difficult to to. To, to sum up, but I try to explain it as the the idea of psychological war is itself a kind of propaganda, or there's a there's a certain um, sort of suite of things that that psychological warfare claims about itself um, that I think we can we can analyze as itself a form of propaganda. So there's this sort of propaganda uh, about propaganda going on, and and one of the things uh, is this claim that it's um, it's really backed up by this um, sort of range of social scientific expertise, right? And I think that this is connected. I, I call it at one point in 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 the book. It's a a social science fiction. I, I, um, I thought that was a delightful term. I really enjoyed that. The social science fiction. Yeah, thank you. I'm I'm happy. I'm happy. Yeah, I'm happy that that landed because I think it's really. Um, yeah, it's an interesting, and, and this this connects back to that idea that um, propaganda is a really bad word at this time. So they're trying to find a way. So it's not just um, by by sort of purporting to to ground psychological war in social scientific expertise, it can make it seem as if it's something more than just a, a vulgar de deception, right? It, instead, it's this sort of intricate technical achievement it's about good governance um you know it's about it's about being a, a, a modern governing power um so again i think connected to this conventional definition is this idea that there's this suite of tools techniques theories practices forms of knowledge 
especially social scientific knowledge that can be used to create power over individuals and over populations, and especially in foreign countries. Um, and I think, of, of course, this isn't true, right? Of, of, if, if we think about this for a moment, um, we realize, well, what would the world look like if the formulas for controlling public opinion were all kind of worked out, right? Um, think, things would look very different. Um, mind you, this is not to say that propaganda isn't real, that uh, people, people aren't influenced, of course. Um, it's just that I think that the, the power of propaganda is, and this is a really simple point that's really intuitive, I think, it's geographically circumscribed. Right. And as a propagandist, do you have access to forms of uh, networks of social capital? Do you have access to various forms of economic and cultural capital? Can you can you leverage those often in one's own country in the domestic context? That can be true if you're a, a, a magazine publisher who operates uh, socially between, say, Washington and New York, well, you have access to a credulous um, and sort of trusted readership. And so you, there is a lever of power there. Um, but what happens, of course, in in foreign countries, even countries uh, who you're at war with, uh, you don't have those sort of levers of power, right? Um, so I think one of the claims, this is why I, I call it sort of a, a social science fiction, is there's an implicit sense in the idea of psychological war that whatever whatever body of knowledge animates its power is something that can overcome the friction of distance. Um, and I, and I don't think that's true. Um, and I think that there's sort of a funny vignette in, uh, that I include among some of the early social scientists who were gathering together to try to figure out what they could do to contribute to the psychological war. And so there was this group called the society for the psychological study of social issues. And one of its psychologists, Leonard Dube, um, he says, and this is a direct quote, I, I really love this. He said, it was felt that the SPSSI could render a public service at a time of crisis. Nothing was said concerning how war and war propaganda could be analyzed. It was simply and enthusiastically believed that psychologists were capable of doing this. So I love the takeaway there is that like, well, well, we don't know what we can do, but we're certain we have to do it. Yeah, no, I, I love that. And and that term social science fiction for me grounds it so much in that moment of um late 50s, early 60s, um uh uh the well development of modernization theory, which I think is mm -hmm. definitely a fellow traveler here. And they're definitely sort of, you know, I don't know what the the the, the metaphor is, sort of um sniffing their own uh, whatever, like they're they're there they're, they're, there's a feedback loop. And uh, th there's no, there's no uh, questioning the very premise. Of course, we can do this. What we're doing, we're not exactly sure, but we'll push this through. And that's such a, such an important insight to the United States relationship with, uh, you know, the global South, we call it now, but the third world at that time. Um, and a lot of the psych yeah. the early psychological warriors become modernization theorists, and then yeah. and then back again. I and saw that, some familiar come, names come up again. Yeah, you, you know, you note that a couple of times in the book, and I saw some. I was like, oh, I know that mm -hmm. character. Um, so the the book is organized into an introduction, four chapters, and a conclusion. And after talking about uh switching back to the good old psyop in uh in um uh the introduction, introduction. Chapter, chapter one is a uh a new geography of defense. Um would you walk us through your main points here and how was this a response to Nazi Germany's moves? 
Yeah. So, I mean, th this is where it really becomes like a bit of a, a, a pot boiler. I mean, there, there's, there's this sort of um, spy intrigue that that's happening here that I was just kind of floored to discover. And again, I think this is one of the real contributions of the book, because I think it's not a story that's really told when the history of psychological war gets told. So, um, and I think here the because it really involves, I mean, I mean, the, the argument here and what I try to demonstrate is showing that the the origins of psychological warfare as a concept in the United States is deeply linked to the formation of the early intelligence community there. Mm -hmm. And again, the context is extremely important. So this is 1940. Um, Britain's on the back, back foot, right? Uh, the Dunkirk evacuation has happened. Um, Britain's desperate for the United States to join the war. Um, FDR would really wants to, to get the United States involved. Um, his main problem is that American public opinion is uh, staunchly against intervention, uh, which is not to say that Americans um, uh, want Germany to win the war. They don't. Overwhelmingly, Americans want Britain to win. They just don't want to get involved in it, right? And this is the classic, I think, the, the dynamics of interventionism versus isolationism is well understood in this, in this era. Um, but it's very important for um, how psychological war as a concept arrives on the scene. So, so one of the things that um, FDR does is he empowers um, William Donovan to create one of the United States' first intelligence agencies. Now, Donovan is a Wall Street lawyer. He's a veteran of the First World War. Um, he's extremely well-connected socially. Um, and he's and he, he goes on to become this figure who's, who's regarded as the sort of grandfather of the CIA, right? Wild Bill Donovan is the is, is the nickname, right? Um, and so he, um, FDR makes him the, what's called the coordinator of information, or he's the, the, the coordinator, the office, creates the office of the coordinator of information, which is sort of a mouthful, but the, the COI, the coordinator of information. And this is the predecessor to um, what becomes the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, which then goes on to sort of become the, the, the CIA. So that's the sort of genealogy here. And so, so Donovan immediately starts collaborating with his British counterpart, uh, who's a Canadian industrialist named William Stevenson. Um, and there's been books written about him as well. His, his uh, spy code name is Intrepid, right? This is the, the spy called Intrepid. Um, and William Stevenson is heading a um, a branch of uh, British um, intelligence called the British Security Coordination, BSC. And it's running its um, program out of 30 Rockefeller Plaza in New York. So, you know, that if you've seen the show 30 Rock or or where um, Saturday Night Live is recorded. Um, and or the Christmas running... tree, the annual Christmas tree. <laughs> that, we are, we are right, recording yeah. in December. <laughs> that's correct, yeah. And so it's, yeah, such a storied building. Um, and so they're they're operating out of uh, under cover of a, a of a passport office, and and so William Donovan and William Stevenson, the two Williams, um, sort of team up, um, and one of the things that they do is to try to advertise or publicize. Um, the danger of this new kind of warfare, um, and this is psychological war, because for them, really public opinion, American public opinion is the battleground, right? They really want to convince Americans um, to, um, to intervene and to join the war. And one of the ways that they do this is try to say, well, listen, 
You might want to stay out of the war. You may want to be an isolationist, but you can't do that because the psychological war is already here. We're, we're already under attack and we're already losing because um, we're being convinced to stay out of the war. And so a lot of the, the, the chapter really deals with the, the details. I mean, I think the key figure here is a journalist named Edmund Taylor, um, re really fascinating individual. He was uh, working for the Chicago Tribune as uh, a correspondent in Paris. And he, he witnesses firsthand the uh, Nazi invasion of Paris. And he so he flees, he manages to get out of the country. And he sort of very quickly, he rushes the publication of a sort of dramatized version of his own and his wife's um, uh, journals and diaries at the time. And this book is published under the, the title, The Strategy of Terror. Uh, and it purports to reveal the secrets of Germany's psychological war uh, in Europe. Now, when you read this book, it's very light on specifics, actually. You keep kind of waiting for um, the black box to get opened up, and uh, it doesn't really happen. But I mean, it does talk about the sort of terrifying nature of the Blitzkrieg and what it's like to, um, you know, have an army approaching. But there's something that's really interesting as well about this claim that he keeps making, which is that, you know, the European countries didn't, they weren't defeated militarily. They were they were beaten psychologically. It was their psychological revolt, uh, resolve that failed them. Um, so this makes, again, so this doesn't aggrandize Germany's military power, right? So it makes them seem like a sort of a, a, a defeatable enemy. Um, but anyway, so so Taylor, Taylor, he sort of gets hooked up with this network that um, the two Williams uh, are, are putting together. Um, and gets sort of incredible access. He has this huge spread in the New York Times. He has a huge spread in Fortune magazine, um, which was which was being run at the time by um, Charles Douglas Jackson, one of these other sort of intriguing figures um, in the book, who who later becomes the um, the sort of head of U.S. psychological war. In fact, Allied psychological war under Eisenhower um, in in um, in the the actual theaters of war, and then he becomes Eisenhower's um, advisor, President Eisenhower's advisor on psychological war. So he's one of these again um, intriguing figures. Um, but Taylor really starts to, and when you know, when I make this claim that psychological war is a kind of social science fiction, um, we get some of these really, um, I, I guess, sort of pulpy uh, stories that come out of Taylor. Like he, he'll, he'll say things like psychological war um you know germany's perfected it it is scientific knowledge this is a direct but scientific knowledge of the inner forces which determine opinion and control nerves and so it's you know it's this again there's this idea that you know as you're sort of saying in in the 1950s there's this enthusiasm for for sort of futuristic super science but there's also this sort of dialectical of enlightenment thing happening right there's this fear that um well, first of all, there's this very mechanical view of human nature and thinking, but there's also a fear that that knowledge of that nature can be um, bent against us and, and manipulated and, and that it will lend itself to this kind of frictionless manipulation. Um, and I mean, some of the, I mean, he, he's really um, like, he, despite also sort of talking about psychological war as this sort of hyper futuristic hyper advanced super scientist he also says things like you know watching germany's psychological war was a 
like some sort of magical war of witch doctors uh, in primitive savages willing each other to destruction. So there's this interesting and contradictory sort of civilizational discourses that happen um, around psychological war where Germany seems to be both hyper advanced, but also kind of um, quote unquote savage at the same time. Um, but it's very, I mean, I think what you come away with is this idea that it's um, it's terrifying to be a target of psychological war is very, uh, is very terrifying. And so, so I think what what Taylor's work does there's two, there's two big consequences of this um, of of thinking about psychological war or if psychological war is a real thing it has these two two major consequences and the first is that it creates for the everyday American for um, I mean for the whole nation for everyone certainly for the whole population but also for for specific individuals to know things about the war, to understand yourself not as just a passive spectator of the war, but an active combatant, right? It's someone who, by virtue of how you comport yourself, the things you believe, the things that you that you know about or don't know about, um, how you feel about the war, um, the idea of psychological war encourages you to understand these things about yourself, not a separate from but integral to the war um and so the first advertisement there's an advertisement for taylor's book in the new york times which is from what i can tell the first instance of the the term psychological war in the new york times is in this advertisement for his mm -hmm. book and the, and the the tagline for the for the advertisement is you are public opinion therefore you are an enemy target and so there's this really pointed use of the second person right and really this about hailing the individual um, as a both a sort of subject and an object of of psychological war. So that's the the first, I think, really important thing that that psychological warfare does is it sort of hails the individual, right? And it interpolates them into the war itself. Now the second thing it does is, um, and this is where the title of the chapter comes from, it purports to sort of change the geography of war it, it mm. creates this this idea of a, of a new geography of defense and that's a line from from nelson rockefeller um who, who was involved in some some ancillary ways uh one of the things that taylor says again and again in his writing is that psychological warfare is not bound by time or space which is a really incredible claim right um and this has something to do with the invention of shortwave radio Mm -hmm. which means that, um, you know, European powers can now broadcast radio signals to the United States. Um, mind you, no one's listening to these. The signal is bad. You need specialist equipment to pick it up. And as like lots of uh, opinion polls had shown at the time, people didn't listen to it because they understood it to be propaganda, right? So no one's tuning into this stuff. But there's this idea that modern technology is going to be able to, you know, do this kind of time-space compression, annihilate distance. And 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 because of this, it it this is going to change the the geography of war. So and and again, this is a very um I I think um clever critique of isolationism, right? Um and it's because it's it's saying well, you know, because this this was the whole idea about isolationism is the U.S. doesn't have to worry about about these wars. We're protected by our two big oceans, and so this idea that 
that psychological war isn't bound by time and space that says, well, no, you're not isolated. That the psi war is already happening and you're part of it. Not only is isolationism um, not preferable, it's untenable. Uh, it's actually impossible. So, so again, these are, I think, the two big claims around the, you know, what I'm calling the birth of psychological war is the one that it changes people's relationship to war and it makes them think about themselves as as part of the war mm -hmm. um and it also purports to change the geography of war it means that again you're, you're involved whether whether you like it or not i'm not saying that these things are, are true in fact i'm very critical of these claims but this is this is sort of the claims of, about psychological war that sort of taylor sets up at at its at its conception this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Right. There's a lot of anxiety on fifth columnists and, and so yes. forth. And you you don't get into it, but this is the same time as uh, uh, as internment, and that, yes. that anxiety about um, the other in the in the United States and and you know real life actions there. Um, chapter the two, yeah, the internal yeah. enemy, yeah. yeah, yeah, internal, yeah, absolutely. Uh, chapter two is entitled uh, "Truth, Territory, Terror," and gets us into the, uh, some psyop practices during the Second World War. Um, and tell us a little bit about that. And uh, how was psychological warfare used in conjunction with real warfare, like aerial bombardment? And there's a, there's an argument, you know, that um, psychological warfare is actually supposed to save lives when used in conjunction with mass violence. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, the, the sort of progression of this chapter from truth to territory to terror is um, sort of my accounting of you know, the the progression of psychological warfare from this, what I just described is this um, sort of terrifying specter coming from abroad to something that we um, are going to practice. As I say we, uh, the United States is going to uh, practice itself, right? Um, and there's there's some sort of, and, and there's some there's there's an irony here, right? Because they just set it up as this terrifying thing. And it's like, well, okay, now we're going to start doing it ourselves. Um, and so this, of course, leads to you know there's there's tension here, right? And so there's some hand wringing about like, well, how are we how are we going to do this um, responsibly or in a way that doesn't sound terrifying like we just described? And so one of the ways that this is done is um, psychological war is split up into um, there's this idea that there's white white propaganda or white psy war and black psy war, mm -hmm. uh, and so the um, when when the war, when the United States um, gets involved in the war in 1942, um, Donovan's Office of the Coordinator of Information becomes the Office of Strategic Services that's formalized, much expanded, and they're responsible for the covert or, or um, so-called black propaganda. But then there's another organization called the Office of War Information, or the OWI, that's responsible for the, the overt or so-called white propaganda, the things that are attributable um, to the United States. Mm -hmm. And so this is where we start to see the idea that the United States can differentiate itself from the vulgarity of World War I propaganda or the terror of German psychological warfare 
through a so-called strategy of truth. So there's this idea, and this this sort of becomes a, a key phrase for U.S. psychological war all through the Cold War. Is this idea that the the truth can fight for us? The truth, the truth is our weapon. Um, and again, there there's this implicit claim here that you know, in the right hands, psychological war can can be m more than just deceptive. It can be productive, right? It can help build morale, for example. Um, and I don't, I, I haven't spoken about it much, but this is one of the, this idea of morale is sort of one of the the twin, morale and psychological war, these sort of twin concepts that grow up um, uh, side by side, right? So, so war is able to attack morale, morale is able to defend against psychological war. So we've got the strategy of truth. So does this mean that the United States will 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 never lie and always tell the truth? Um, well, well, no, they have the OSS for that. Um, but what it what it really means is that um, the U.S. is going to try to conduct its propaganda in a way that doesn't seem like overt propaganda, right? They're going to um, use they're going to sort of adopt the tones of objective, neutral, more or less liberal political discourse to do things like highlight favorable news and downplay negative news. Um, they're going to try to influence the framing of issues, etc. And this isn't really all that revolutionary. I mean, this is also how Germany was conducting its, its propaganda, right? Um, because again, at the time, there was so much fear that any kind of propaganda that smelled too much like propaganda was instantly going to turn people off right so 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 there was very much an idea that that propaganda needed to appear at least in in its tone ob objective and neutral and so so what happens when we get to the battlefield well it doesn't go particularly well um because as i say you need these kind of um i think for influence to effectively work, you have to be integrated into trusted circuits of information circulation, right? Um, and that can happen in, in domestic contexts. I think it's a bit easier, sort of, it's a bit more harder to achieve abroad. Um, when you're trying to achieve it against people in a shooting war, that's uh, very difficult, right? And so, but but nevertheless, we see some of the first um, U.S. cyber campaigns in North Africa. Um, they're dropping leaflets. Um, saying, you know, oh, you can uh, on, on Vichy French troops and suggesting that they uh, that they surrender and that they'll be given safe conduct to do so. It doesn't work very well. And there's a whole contingent, in fact, of allied commanders who, who were really kind of fed up with it. They were the the steel over paper contingent, right? They were like, we want we um, and you had people like um you know, Arthur Harris and the bomber Harris of the the British Royal Air Force saying that, you know, the only thing these damn leaflets are doing is giving the armies of Europe uh, a supply of toilet paper. Now, once once the Allies do occupy territory, I, th I think things things change a bit. We, we do see the um, setting up of the circuits of um, U.S. commodity exports to Europe. So Hollywood uh, movies start screening in Italian theaters. Um, the OWI is setting up distribution rights for uh, American film distributors. So so there's there's definitely a big role that the private sector is playing as well. Um, and so there is this territorial aspect to it. Um, U.S. occupying forces are doing things like dictating editorial policies or providing licenses for newspapers to sort of re to, to sort of reestablish the circulation of news and information um, in sort of occupied and liberated Europe, um, which is sort of an interesting process. But um, 
the I mean, I think the, the the real the thing that I really try to argue with this chapter is to show that um, the the last part, the terror part, mm -hmm. is when we think about the the history of of psychological war in World War II as conducted by the United States, that it is intimately connected to uh, the practice of aerial bombing, which is also a relatively new practice at the time. I mean, it's not not completely new, but it's the Second World War where the practice of aerial bombardment um, comes into full force in a way that it never had before. And so these two things, aerial bombardment and psychological warfare, kind of grow up side by side. And I argue that they're really intimately connected. And this is where we start to see what I think we can think about as a sort of the, the, the Yanis face of psychological war, these sort of two faces that it has. And so, and this, this is sort of um, connects to your question on, on the idea that psychological war can save lives, mm -hmm. because there's this one face of psychological warfare that says, well, Psywar is about winning hearts and minds. It's a strategy of truth. It's a way to make war more humane, less kinetic. It can replace the violence of war. It can it can replace killing. Um, and this is this kind of, you know, the, the, the therapeutic face or discourse of psychological war. And this is often the story that, again, gets told on the home front, is that psychological war is good and it, it, it shows our commitment to to waging war humanely and then of course there's the other face the more inward facing um face of of psychological war that's very clearly about an attempt to refine the social power of violence uh, and especially air power so air power is something that i mean since the late 19th century in the scramble for africa european powers had um we're committed to trying to translate into political power. There's a whole doctrine of colonial air policing mm -hmm. that tries to use bombing as a lever over populations to for pacification and try to like, can we use bombing to make people do what we want? Um, and yeah, and I owe, owe, owed a lot here to uh, my supervisor, Derek Gregory, who, who's done a lot of work on the history of, of aerial bombing here. And so it was really in that context that that I sort of understood how psychological war connected to that history, um, because bombing in the Second World War is not just seen as the strategy to kill and destroy, although it certainly is this, um, but it's also understood as a kind of communication. Bombing is understood as a kind of communication, both to populations and to political leaders, and there's this idea that emerges that if you if you bomb heavily enough, if you um, destroy the quote unquote morale of a population, if you sort of torture the body politic enough, then it will rise up and overthrow its leaders. Um, and this is a an idea that's actually still very much alive today. Um, you, I, I'm not even sure though we, the, yeah. the entire 20th <laughs> history of the 20th century, pulls the rug out from underneath that idea. I mean, it, it, the exact opposite happens time after time. I don't know how it's, I mean, has this ever happened? Has this ever happened in, in reality? But it's one of these ideas that fails forward continuously. Um, but there's, I know, yeah, there's this optimism that I think, and again, it, it goes back to this, you know, these like sort of modernization conceits, right? Is that, um, forms of social scientists can be leveraged to make bombing socially legible to its victims. 
so that bombing doesn't appear as this kind of quote-unquote unexplained ultimatum. Um, so we see the integration of psychological war operations into bombing raids and campaigns, and there's this sort of cycle where um, a leaflet bomb will be dropped, and so it'll say, um, uh, you know, surrender, surrender now, please, we're, we're targeting this city, um, evacuate this city. Um, bombs are going to be dropped, like uh, surrender now, and then the bombing will happen, and then more leaflets will be dropped um, that are say, okay, ready to surrender. And so, sometimes the the tone of these these leaflets was was quite quite cruel and mocking. Um, so there's a sense in which psychological war was seen, and this is you know its other face as a way to refine the terror of of violence in in war, and and to make to make violence socially and politically productive. But of course, yeah, as you said, as you rightly said, we, we know that this doesn't really work. We, and, and they knew it at the time. There's, there, there's, there's writing at the time um, that suggests the opposite, right? We, we know what London's experience under the Blitz was. We know the galvanizing effect that Pearl Harbor, Pearl Harbor had on American public opinion. Um, bombing tends only to increase the the resolve and resentment of its victims right as, as you as you say and this and again this was known at the time i mean um I, the last thing i'll say about about this chapter is we um you know i i talk about psychological war being a social science fiction i mean they there was a anthropologist named alexander layton who was working with the office of war information and he was um s studying Japanese morale. So they do things like really interesting things like like intercepting journals, they're doing um, interviews with prisoners. And he had formed a picture of Japanese morale, which suggested that um, morale was very low, and that that Japan could potentially be um, convinced to surrender. But one of the things that was preventing them from doing so was the fear of reprisal, uh, the fear of what would happen to them if they did lose. And so he was saying to his he was trying to say to his commanders up the line, say, listen, if we continue to bomb like this, we're confirming their worst fears, and that's going to make them less likely to surrender. And his his bosses got really mad at him. <laughs> they, they said, no, that's not what we want to hear. Um, what we want to hear is that Japanese morale is invincible, which was itself part of Japan's own propaganda to get Americans to believe that, right? Uh, and, that, and that bombing is the only way to weaken that invincible morale. Um, so, he, you know, he 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 concludes. He he wrote a retrospective on his experience after the war, and and he says, I think this line it's quite incredible. He says that you know the military uses social science the same way that a drunk uses a lamppost, which is for support rather than illumination. Yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, so chapter three, uh, covert crusade. We get into the Cold War. Um, how does PSYOPs evolve in the American campaign or crusade against communism? Yeah, so the, I mean, the, the big thing that happens for psychological warfare is that in 1953, the United States Information Agency uh, is created. Now, this is the outgrowth. If the, um, you know, if, if the CIA grew out of what was the OSS, um, the United States Information Agency grows out of what was the Office of War Information. Um, and there's an irony here because um, 
the USIA was supposed to signal the the end of psychological war, the death of psychological war. Um, of course, not in practice, uh, but uh, of course, the the term had taken on somewhat of a sinister connotation, right? It's sort of, and again, it sounds scary. It's one of those things where a, a pejorative meaning, you know, sort of chases the the thing, no matter what what sort of euphemism is used at the time. But they eventually settle on this term public diplomacy um, sort of later on. Um, but of course, the um, you know, it's like that Mark Twain joke. The, the rumors of psychological war's death uh, were greatly exaggerated. Um, and so this is, you know, this is where um, I started to do a lot of uh, archival work. And one of the interesting things about the USIA is you couldn't really do a lot of research on it um, because one of the, the the law that brought it into existence was the called the Smith Munt Act, and one of one of the things that it stipulated was that the products produced by the USIA couldn't be circulated within the United States. Uh, mind you, that that did happen uh, a number of times, so it didn't it wasn't really. But it's it's often interpreted, though some disagree. Uh, it's often interpreted as a, a domestic dissemination ban. So basically, the USIA can't do propaganda against the American public. Like, like but the CIA. Like the CIA is not supposed to operate in the United States. It's all extra. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Ostensibly. Yeah. yeah <laughs> <laughs> and so, but as a result, you couldn't, um, the, the, the files of the USIA were, were closed until the early 2000s. And so when I went to the National Archives in Maryland, um, I was, I was able to, to, to get into the USIA files because they, they'd, only recently been made available so that was a, a a real a real boon and it's uh i mean there's still a lot of files to go through there i think that's a, a there's a lot of good research to be done on the usia files uh at, at nara um but yeah so so this, it's sort of funny right because this is this is the moment when the usia so cywar is supposed to to be gone um but in fact the usia um represents the sort of massive expansion and crystallization of the United States psychological war capacity that had been established through its series of outposts um, during the Second World War. And, and as you can see in, in the archives, basically, you know, over the course of a decade, almost every country in the world, there's there's a plan, there's a country plan um, that says, okay, um, what type of messages do we want in this country? What kind of messages do we want um for the domestic audience there what kind of messages do we want for for um americans about this country and so there's these country plans that sort of coincide with this broader turn towards regional and area studies that's that's emerging uh, at this time and so that's the sort of broader context of psychological war but but the chapter yeah it, it focuses actually not on the usia but on this campaign that the uh, that the cia runs which by their by their own accounting was what they call one of the, the the longest running and most successful of its of its covert operations in the campaign, and that was of course to um, secretly run Radio Free Europe. Um, and now Radio Free Europe is more of a, a kind of a household name, but I think it's really easy to forget that during its first fifteen years, um, it was again covertly run um, by the CIA, um, and it was sort of masquerading as this civil society organization that was led and funded by concerned citizens and grassroots funding. So the, the specific front group was called the National Committee for a Free Europe, and uh, that committee ran a campaign called the Crusade for Freedom. 
And the Crusade for Freedom um, was uh, was part fundraiser, part advocacy um, network that uh, solicited funds for Radio Free Europe, which would then in turn broadcast um, sort of pro-Western, pro-capitalist, pro-liberalism messages, um, sometimes to Europe, but mostly to um, the Warsaw Pact countries in, in Eastern Europe. Um, and yeah, it's... Uh, but my argument here is that um, as much as this campaign was about um, reaching the sort of communist countries in Europe, it was also about um, targeting Americans and sort of um, bringing Americans on board um, for the ideological Cold War. And so I'll, I'll just give sort of one example from the chapter, which I, I really love, which is this idea of the truth dollar. Yeah. So one of the things the crusade did was... Um, because there was this idea that Radio Free Europe was completely like uh, supported by Americans who were um, who who wanted to uh, sort of themselves become psychological warriors, right? It was this idea that by funding Radio Free Europe, by by sending in a truth dollar, that you could fund the psychological war that that was being waged uh, against communism. And again, it, it it's that theme of um, transforming the sort of ordinary civilian from a passive spectator to an active participant in in war right um and i think there's something again kind of genius about it because the the, the symbolism of the dollar um as as an investment i mean it's it's you know it's a very low amount of money so but it's but the, the symbolic investment the sort of the spiritual investment of the individual in the you know the so-called fight against communism, I think is really smart because it does this thing to conflate market exchange with political freedom. Mm -hmm. And it, 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 it positions the US dollar as the sort of unit of political agency, right? Quite, um, yeah, yeah. So, so it's interesting. And they, but the sort of punchline here is that for every dollar that the Crusade for Freedom raised, every, for every truth dollar they successfully solicited, they actually lost money. I can't remember, but something like it cost them a dollar fifty to 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 raise the dollar because of the uh, administrative costs and and things like that. So they were they were losing money, but of course, Radio Free Europe was fully fully funded. Um, but but but, but also as, as you just noted, there's that effect of enrolling the average American into being a cold warrior, into being an anti-communist crusader. So actually losing money on that, it's not losing money, that's that's investment. You're getting a return on investment by making the average American a part of this campaign, right? Absolutely. And and I mean, I think that that idea of like invest, like, yeah, the, these sort of symbolic gestures that in, invest the individual is really interesting. I mean, the, the, other, the other sort of example from this chapter is this, the idea of the... Uh, it was called the Freedom Bell. They made a sort of a copy of the Liberty Bell and toured it around the the the, the United States. And I'll go, I can't go all the way down the rabbit hole in this because there's, but it's uh, as part of this tour, they um, encouraged people to sign what was called a Freedom Scroll. And the Freedom Scroll was saying like, I I recommit myself to the principles of freedom or something like that, right? And it has this very sort of catechistic confessional kind of it's about this and you know and i i draw a lot on foucault here because it's like 
all of these sort of first person statements about yourself. It's these, you, you're encouraged to produce a discourse about yourself. And there's the idea that by, by writing it down, by saying it out loud, you, again, you invest yourself in the statements that you make about yourself. Um, and, and I mean, so the idea was that once they had finished this tour, they would take this massive stack of scrolls and they were quite big and sort of inter them in the base of the bell's housing. I, I don't kind of know what the architecture looked like. And then all of that was sent to West Berlin in City Hall, where the bell is still still there. I don't know if those oh, scrolls still, are still Oh, wow, still it's still there, there huh? So, so yeah, uh, West, yeah, Berlin listeners, um, if we can get eyes on those scrolls, <laughs> I'd, I'd be really fascinated to know if they're still there. But the idea was, I mean, it's, you know, I, I like this idea of the, the accumulated weight of this stack of political avowals and, and its sort of symbolic representation of the ordinary individual, not just being defensive anymore, right? Not just not not just trying to preserve their own morale against the the onslaught of enemy psychological war but themselves becoming active participants it's uh, i think it's quite interesting absolutely with chapter four uh you enter a world that, that i know uh southeast asia um tell us about psi war in vietnam and this chapter places the american war in vietnam in the larger context of psychological warfare as a, as a branch of counterinsurgency correct yeah that's right um and again, yeah, this this was a chapter where I really relied a lot on um, archival work um, from the from the National Archives, um, and again on those USIA um, records. Um, and so, yeah, one of the things I try to set this chapter up by situating Psy War in Vietnam within the broader shift um, within the United States Information Agency towards counterinsurgency that really started, um, in the early 1960s with the Kennedy administration. And one of the things that Kennedy does is he appoints, uh, as the director of the USIA, uh, Edward R. Murrow, which I think is sort of an irony given that Mur Murrow is sort of remembered as this, like, you know, he, he's the guy who fights McCarthy. Uh, he's the um, sort of champion of, of liberal democracy over over the Red Scare. And he sort of finishes his career as the United States sort of anti-communist crusader. I, at, at, I was at the USA. so surprised, uh, so surprised to read that. <laughs> so, so was I. And it's not really discussed that much. So when I, when I saw this in the no. archives, I was like, I was like, what, Murrow? Um, and but he's he he quickly falls ill. So he he has the position for a very short tenure, um, which is why it maybe doesn't get um, talked about that much. But one of the things that I was able to find was Murrow's um, notes uh, and records relating to his participation in um, uh, this group called the the Special Group on Counterinsurgency. This is the time when there's all these special group interagency special groups being formed in um, in in the government, and this one was set up by uh, Bobby Kennedy, who's the Attorney General uh, at the time, and it involves all sort of representatives from all the major um, sort of military and security agencies, and and sort of Murrow sort of briefs the the special group on. The, the USIA's sort of counterinsurgency turn. Um, and he says, you know, all of those things that we used to talk about at the USIA, this idea about advertising the US or making friends or the strategy of truth, that's not what we're doing now. So what the USIA is going to be doing is we're, we're out here to support 
friendly governments. And one of the examples he gives is the uh, Cyril Adula regime in, in the Congo. He says, we're setting up the infrastructure to support that government um, with communication, with, with plant, with expertise, um, with materials um, to, to help um, create a communication environment that can produce internal security, that can hedge against, um, you know, uh, communist revolutions and things like that. And so th this is the wider context of of the USIA's counterinsurgency turn and its interest in in so-called counterinsurgency countries, of which Vietnam is one. Um, and this is there's a heavy interest in in Latin America and in Southeast Asia. So 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 this is the context. And so what does U.S. Cywar do? Well, they're um, trying to support uh, at first, well, the, the DM government and then um, its many successors. And this is about providing, again, logistical support, infrastructure for communication. Um, it's also about producing uh, content, so magazines, radio programs, um, news stories, entertainment, operas, th things things like that. Um and so there's this hope that producing content and, and setting up the um, infrastructure, the conditions to produce information circulation in Vietnam uh, will create this sort of lever of power. And, and I use like Foucault's idea of governmentality or, or biopolitics to think about um, this type of power created by circulation, um, encouraging conditions for life and, and, and the growth of life. Um, and, and so this is where that connection again to modernization theory comes in, right? There's this hope that in setting up the conditions for modern communication, as they see it anyway, um, that they can create um, so-called modern individuals and that these modern individuals will be um, malleable in a way uh, as they as they become modern subjects and and take leave of uh, sort of traditional life, and so again we see here pop up, you know, one of those first books on psychological wars written by Daniel Lerner, and Daniel Lerner becomes one of these modernization theorists out of uh, the Center for International Studies at MIT. He writes a book called The Passing of Traditional Society that's very much about um, how he believes that modern communication technologies can sort of unlock the potential of individuals for for modern existence or, or modern experiences of the world and that this can be used um again to create to create a, a new type of person and this sort of i, I mean I, I guess hubris we see um very much within the types of cywar organizations that are established uh, in vietnam so the most influential one being uh the Joint United States Public Affairs Office, that's JUSPOW, and that's established in 1965, um, now under the Johnson presidency. And its first director is this guy, Barry Zorthian, who's sort of a legend in U.S. public diplomacy. And, I mean, he he, he makes some pretty incredible statements that I think re reflect this kind of belief in their ability to... Um, enact modernization not only on 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 the country but sort of its people at, at a sort of spiritual level he'll say things like and this is a direct quote we can rebuild these people we can turn them into an asset for their country right we can so there's this idea that people can sort of be de de and reconstruct it right and that that 
that's like de- de-radicalized, right? Well, yeah, and and yeah, they can be de-radicalized or they can be pacified. And so he'll say things like, "We can we can be more more effective than the military. We can remove combatants from the battlefield." Um, of of course, um, well, <laughs> does this happen? Well, that's another question. Um, but again, it it ties into the to the to the broader strategy that we see um, in in the war as well. Or this idea of you know that they can create not only a, a modern country but modern individuals. They can create uh, this idea of new life, right? Because that's what the the whole theme around the the strategic Hamlet program. They're often called new life Hamlets, as these sort of microcosms where a, a new way of living could be created and um psychological war is a big part of that that vision for creating a modern uh, experience um again I, I do think that this is uh quite hubristic right and some of the but but nonetheless some of the efforts that were undertaken are quite um remarkable there was an effort to construct a national television network uh so a single unified TV network that would cover the entire country. Um, and so the, the, uh, I think the army brings in um, NBC's international division. And so they contract. So again, we see lots of private private sector actors um, sort of coming in. And so the, 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 the goal is to produce an, a national television audience um, over which they can have influence and through which they can help shape the contours of uh, an emergent nationalism that will be that will be friendly, right? Um, <clears throat> and there's this there's this sort of belief that um, through exposure to to these sort of technological marvels or the marvels of modern communication, that again people will um, sort of be be dazzled by the experience, and it will make them want to integrate themselves into um, quote unquote modern modern life, uh, yeah, I mean- which Dare I I venture this with a a Canadian with a background in communications, but maybe the medium is the message, right? (laughs) It's it's, it's the the Marshall McLuhan cliche. I mean, communicating via television, putting televisions. I think some of them are like run by generators in villages where people could gather together and and, and watch this modern marvel. I mean, you're absolutely absolutely right. And that, that that was the dream. And I mean... Yeah, and it's really a folly. I mean, in in a in a in a country where in a war where this sort of ordinary peasant, the quote unquote ordinary peasant, is is understood as the the war's center of gravity to construct a national television network um, in an agrarian country where n- not a lot of places have electricity, let alone television. So so yeah, they would they put together these um, what are called mo- mobile information teams. So uh, you get a jeep with a generator and a TV set, and they would go set up a, a television station, or sorry, a, a television sort of viewing party in a village. And it was hoped that that vision of uh, you know televisual modernity would act as this sort of totem uh, to 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 sort of convert people um, to to the cause, or or at least to pacify. Um, so, so this you know, is the, that... the, the French, the French did a similar thing a couple of generations before with, um, with, uh, film and, uh, setting up movie mm. projectors and, and, and showing films in, in various villages and, and a, a lot, a lot of, uh, public health films, which, which I looked at my work on oh. history of disease, but there's a lot of talk about simply setting up this projector 
in this village in central Vietnam is going to, well, win hearts and minds and, and the technology is going to be so seductive that of course they're going to get enrolled in the French civilizing mission. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. And, and so this is, I mean, this sort of goes back to the, this like Yanis face of, of psychological war, right? This is very much the, the one face that sort of sees psychological war as a potential to be productive, to be humane, um, you know, and to, to actually pr produce that, this, this sort of vision of new life that they, um, are wanting to build. But of course, this is contradicted by the other face of psychological war, right? Um, which is, remains sort of deeply integrated and wedded to strategies of aerial bombardment, which of course are strategies of terror, right? And so what we, we see, the, it, it's a very similar story to the one I described um, in the Second World War, is that there's an integration of sort of psychological war operations with bombing campaigns. And indeed, there's an understanding among commanders that bombing itself is a form of communication. Um, in, in James Gibson's book, Techno War in Vietnam, he makes this argument very convincingly that um, bombing was seen as a form of communication. And, and I mean, the types of like leaflets that you that you discover, I mean, it's, again, there was very much an effort to advertise the industrial capacity of the United States and its ability to um, sort of produce this scale of killing and, and the scale of destruction, um, and also to advertise the, the willingness to, to continue to use it. So, so this is, again, th this kind of speaks to these two faces of psychological war and how they're kind of constantly in tension with with one another there's these sort of biopolitical ambitions right this idea that we can cyborg can be productive and create life that always is rubbing up against the i guess more necropolitical reality of uh the killing uh that is sort of always inescapable in war um and i i guess one of the you know this I mean, I think one of the really uh, a good example of this was that, you know, you, you would see these leafleting campaigns that would, I guess this sort of sums up the the contradiction, uh, that would sort of be advertising the United States ability to, pro to provide medical aid. They said, if you're, if you're injured, we like, we can guarantee you uh, medical care, uh, against injuries. And it's like, well, <laughs> where did those injuries come from in the first place? <laughs> right. I mean, these are so. So these are these are injuries pursuant to to sort of you know the the massive bombardment that that occurred um, in Vietnam. So this is again the the, the contradictions, um, and I, I think that's really what I tried to show with the book is that this idea of psychological war isn't as as neat as it might seem. It's in fact full of these contradictions, and and we should be careful not to take at face value the claims that psychological war tends to make about itself. Yeah, absolutely. So what were what were some of the more surprising or amusing things you encountered in your research? I mean, my favorite sort of history shenanigans was as you talked about around the uh Radio Free Europe and the and the you know the the secret funding and, and convincing the American public that it was civil society. Um yeah. I found that so fascinating. What were some of the others that popped out at you? Well, I mean, I guess for for surprising, um, I, I really didn't expect the project to be as historiogra historiographical uh, as it as it was. Um, I, I really didn't expect to 
tell a different story about the historical origins of psychological war than than are often told. So, so that was sort of surprising for me. Um, yeah, amusing. It's I, I think there, there's there's something about sometimes I dread I dread you know some people ask, well, what do you research?" And I'll say, oh, "Psychological war," and and someone will inevitably say to me, "Ah, oh, yes." But have you read Sun Tzu's The Art of War? <laughs> uh, and there's, which which reflects, there there's there's this idea I think that you know there there are these sort of, um, like, truths that the, these 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 like bromides that you can, um, if you can learn there's this this sort of secret secret wisdom of of warfare that provides some kind of transcendental access to power and i think there's a certain type of guy out there that really loves that right and so sometimes it's like um you get involved in those conversations like oh no um yeah. a, a lot of a lot of them live near me in Sil and work in silicon valley um, <laughs> yeah i i bet that's right and so but it speaks bro, bro, bromide would be the word i mean bro <laughs> yeah that's really good uh, but so there, I mean, there's there's this misconception I think about about psychological war um, from both its proponents and detractors. I think right, and it's they both they both strangely agree on something, which is the 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 idea that that psychological war uh, represents a coherent body of knowledge that can be translated into social and political power. So there's a belief in the efficacy of psychological warfare by its proponents as an endorsement of psychological war. But then there's also a belief in its efficacy by its detractors as, as a condemnation. I say, oh, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta stop them from doing this stuff, right? And so I think both of those beliefs in 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 their own way are kind of symmetrical. And they they may prevent us from seeing that psychological warfare is maybe not all of the things that it claims to be. Um, and so I think that's one of the surprising things that that I found. And so that's one of the things that I've tried to do with, with the book is to sort of challenge the idea of what psychological war is on a more fundamental level. Yeah. Um, any thoughts on the future of psychological warfare? I mean, in the conclusion, you, you reference uh russian mis misinformation campaigns in 2016 and, and brexit yeah. and so forth um any thoughts on where we're at or or <laughs> what, the, what the future is i mean i don't i don't love to speculate but i mean if i i do i mean i i think that what we'll likely see when we when we hear about psychological war in, in sort of popular political discussions is that it will become more and more conflated with um, legitimate forms of domestic political dissent and, and protest and, and, and dissidents. Um, and we saw this in, I, I, in fact, I have an article out about this. That's also in open access. Um, we, we saw this a lot in 2020 um, with the Black Lives Matter movement, especially with the George Floyd protests, there was a sizable contingent uh, of uh, voices in the American press that were trying to claim that Russian psychological warfare had, had quote-unquote, tricked Americans and Black Americans into protesting George Floyd's murder. And I think that's... Um, incredibly concerning and i think it's i think it's cynical and and uh, but also very dangerous right i mean i think there's like i mean the idea that outrage against 
like you know the murder of a man caught on film is not a legitimate form of political grievance but something that is fomented by uh, a foreign power is i mean there's something extremely exculpatory about that right it's like oh the problem can't be with our with our society it's it's about outside agitators or it's outside influence and so i i, I think we're likely to see those kind of that that kind of rhetoric continue to circle ar around the idea of psychological war and and what it's capable of doing Right. And, and obviously the 2016 uh, presidential campaign in the United States comes to mind. And yeah, you know, if, you, if you blame it on the Russians, then you, you don't have to address uh, Clinton not going to Michigan or 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 may, maybe that Trump had a message that a number of Americans wanted to hear. Um, you can just it's you used to again, sculptory. You, you don't take yeah. responsibility for for our own shortcomings. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you've been really generous with your time, and I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. And I, but I've got two questions before I let you go. These are the the standard uh, new books debriefing questions. Um, mm -hmm. First, uh, can you suggest two books for our audience? Yeah, I mean, so I'll, I guess I'll say if you are interested more in in psychological war, uh, there's a really great book by Christopher Simpson called "The Science of Coercion," that is a very um, sort of tightly focused study of um, early communication studies in the 1950s, especially around the uh, the journal Public Opinion Quarterly, mm -hmm. where a lot of that, these early ideas uh, about psychological war and the power of propaganda get kind of worked out. And he does a really excellent de deconstruction of that, of that literature. And so I think that's the sort of, if further reading in psychological war. Um, and I guess the other book, I mean, I've been revisiting um, Derek Gregory's book, The Colonial Present. I mean, I think for, this is sort of topical, I guess, but as um, we're seeing more, I mean, violence in the Middle East and 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 perhaps even further regional ex escalation, if there's especially younger listeners out there who are looking for some contextualization of politics in the Middle East, I think I think Gregory's uh, the, the Colonial Present is um, a, a really great place to start. It's very accessible and, and very well written. Absolutely. Um, and finally, uh, what are your, what are you working on now, and what can we hope to see from you next? Yeah, I mean, hopefully, I'm, I've been working on uh, an article about the the idea of active measures, uh, which is so. So I give it sort of a similar treatment to psychological war, which is to say, I'm trying to find out how the idea of active measures entered the sort of U.S. political discourse, because this is, you know, as you said, around the 2016, this is this is a term that returned to political discourse. Uh, are sort of around the Russiagate scandal. Um, and so active measures is sort of a shorthand for, um, well, erstwhile Soviet um, covert operations in, in other countries. So including things like psychological war. So I sort of set about trying to find out when when and where that that word entered American um, the American lexicon, and it turns out it it emerged in in the 1980s and sort of the first term of the the Reagan presidency, the so-called Second Cold War in the post detente era, um, and it was very much uh, a concerted response by the Reagan administration to paint the 
anti-war movement, the U.S. anti-war movement, especially the the anti-nuclear war, uh, the anti-proliferation uh, or the the nuclear freeze movement, as something that was infiltrated by and fomented by uh, Soviet intelligence. And so I kind of trace, and this is another concept that just doesn't really exist in um, in in American political discourse before the 1980s, and it's sort of a reconstruction of how that term uh, came to exist. And so that should be out soon. And then the other thing I'm working on is uh, sort of a, a critique of this idea of hybrid warfare, because this is another term we've been seeing a lot of in the in the past decade or so. Um, and the sort of main claim that the idea of hybrid war tends to make is that this division between war and peace is is blurring or it's 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 breaking down. Um, and that's the hybrid part. And so I think one of the interesting things that this does is suggest or implies that there's a bygone time in which the line between war and peace was well established and um sort of uh, well observed. And I mean, that's just not true. And so I, so my, so the argument that I'm moving towards there is this idea that hybrid warfare as an idea is based more in nostalgia and rea than in reality. And so I try to tr trace some of those uh, civil military. So that's sort of a, a conceptual piece for me in the way I don't usually write, but yeah, that's what I'm, that's what I'm working on. Fascinating. I look, I look forward to seeing those. So, um, Jeffrey White, uh, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thanks, Mike. It's been a, a real pleasure. Yeah. This has been a conversation with Jeffrey White of Lancaster University about the birth of psychological war, propaganda, espionage, and military violence from World War II to the Vietnam War uh, with Oxford University Press in 2023. And it's available via open access. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University. This has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.